good question. Good morning. Good morning. I am coming through. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for joining us for worship. If you're online, thank you for joining us live this morning. We are glad that you're here. We're glad to be together to praise the Lord today. Let's say a quick prayer as we begin our time of worship. Father, we just thank you. Lord, we welcome your spirit into this place. It is your goodness and grace that have brought us here and that we celebrate today. Be with us in this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's worship. I searched the world But it couldn't feel me A man's empty brace The treasures of faith Are never enough And you came along And put me back together Every desire is now satisfied here in your love. There's nothing. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing. Nothing is
Just slow down for a second. Just be still. Be still and know He is God. Whatever. Whatever distractions, whatever burdens you came in carrying, you can lay them down. No matter if you're here in the room, at home watching, anywhere, it doesn't matter. Just slow down. Focus on Him. Right now is about nothing but you and Him.
sorry when I've come with my agenda. I'm sorry I forgot that you're enough. Take me back to where we started. I open up my Caught up in your presence I just want to sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy
just wanna sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this lonely moment. Never wanna leave. Oh, I'm not here for best things. Jesus, you worship you and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Welcome, everyone. Welcome this morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being online with us. Thanks for being here in person with us. God is a good God. He's got good things in store for, for us. Amen. Amen, amen. I want to uh, welcome you if you're a guest with us this morning, whether online or in person. We appreciate that you're here. We'd love to know that you are here and be able to send you a note of thanks for coming. Um, if you would fill out a new here card, if you're in person, there's one in the back of the seat in front of you somewhere as well. Online, there will be a link uh, for new here that you can fill out. We'd love to get in touch with you. And there's a spot on there that you can check if you'd like uh, to receive a phone call or know a little bit more about what we do here at the church. Um, also, for those that are new, we have a Start Here class that happens every second Sunday of the month. We'd love for you to be a part of that as well, but we appreciate you being here, um, those of you that are that are our guests with us this morning. And uh, we have some announcements we're going to hit here in just a second on the video. I do want to say, um, normally we pass the offering when it's not COVID, but we're not doing that, obviously, in these days. And so... If you would like to support the mission of the church or give, uh, or if God puts it on your heart to give, then you can do so either by dropping in the drop boxes. At the, there's one at the back here and one at the side on this door here, uh, checks and cash, or you can mail in, or you can also do the online thing that you see on the screen behind me there. But we appreciate all of you that continue to faithfully give. We depend and are appreciative of your support. It's a, it's a major and huge blessing. Um, and so... Also, Corey, uh, I spoke with him. He's doing well. Um, him and his wife and his family, they are just been uh, taking it easy and resting and doing the medicine thing, getting better and better. And so hopefully we'll see him back here pretty soon. So if you turn your attention to the screen to check out the video announcements, that'd be great. Hello, CF Spirits. I'm glad you're here. Last week's video was a little bit crazy, so we had to dial it back this time. Anyways, first announcement, Trunk or Treats this Friday. You can volunteer or you can drop by and get some candy, so don't miss it. And don't forget to change your clock. Or you will be late for church. I don't, know what, I don't want that to happen to you. Lastly, our DNA groups. Well, we have DNA groups that you can do. You can just go onto our website. You can get all the information you'll need. And then you can just do it. Yeah. That's it. I think that's it. Now, Pastor T is coming on stage. Ah! Video being a little too wild. Um, wow. I sound... I sound spacious today. How are you guys doing? Hey, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, glad that you're with us online as we continue our message series about purpose. Uh, we started off a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Corey talked about uh, purpose in life and how we need to fight for purpose. We talked about the question of how do we find and how do we grow and thrive in the midst of the struggles of life while we're fighting through that and how we need to fight and how turning the other cheek isn't the same as giving up, that that's not uh, how we look at that in our faith. And Corey talked about the fact that purpose can oftentimes for us seem like a very far off goal to reach and one that's really hard to attain 
and that we have a hard time seeing sometimes in the midst of our daily struggles in life. Uh, but one thing that he said uh, stuck with me really, and I think it was really important to talk about, is that true transformation in our lives comes in the midst of our struggles and not in spite of our struggles. And I think that's a, that's a really important truth for us to remember as we go through this. Uh, the gospel renewal that we've talked about here, it doesn't stop when we're having difficulties in life. It actually is continuing through those difficulties as God continues to work to renew us. It's happening in the struggles. And last week, Pastor Brandon talked about that as well. Uh, we talked about doing things for those who can't or, or won't or don't do them for you. And that's a struggle to do that, but it's also transformative. When we do that, when we purpose ourselves to do that and bless people in that ways, it's transformative for us in our life. And so as we continue to talk through this today, I just want to transition into uh, thinking about purpose a little differently this week. I know that um, we're all wishing these days, uh, or at least I am, I assume everyone else is often wishing that it was better these days, right? I mean, no, if there was no pandemic, uh, that work was good, uh, that there was no election stress going on, uh, that we had health, that we had wealth, that we had happiness, that all these things, in many, many ways, wishing that life was better. And so my question that I kind of want to flip around and look at it this week is to think about this. What if you had it all? What if you had all of that and you had even more? than you needed. Would life be full of purpose then? And that's what we're kind of going to look at today. If you'd like, you can open your Bibles with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? It's kind of in the middle. Uh, there's no shame in using the table of contents if you need that to find that, especially when you're looking for a book that's like eight pages long in the middle of the Old Testament, right? So we're going to dive into that, crack it open together today, and I hope that we'll be able to better understand how God works in our life, how this fits into our story today, and how it fits into the ongoing story of God that our Bibles have that always are pointing us in the direction of Jesus, okay? So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you again for today. We ask that you would be with those who can't be with us. Lord, bless those who are dealing with illness and their family. God, we trust you today that your spirit will do your work through your word. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we open today, traditionally, the figure in this book we see the words, the teacher. And traditionally, the teacher, which is the voice that speaks to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, has been associated in the Old Testament with King Solomon, okay? And that's true, that's a true view. Um, it's been very common throughout history, and there's nothing in the Bible that would say that it's not King Solomon. There are different views on who it might be. And whether Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes or not, in this book, we're invited, what's happening is we're invited to see life as if we were a Solomon-like figure, okay? One of the most powerful, influential, wise kings in all of history. Now, if anybody can speak to the question of meaning in life under the sun, okay, who's the most qualified figure in the biblical imagination? And it's this guy, okay? It's King Solomon. I mean, if anyone had a crack at making your time on earth the best it could possibly be, the best you could imagine. It's him, okay? In verse 16 of chapter one, he says, the teacher says, now I said to myself, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. And he, go on, he goes on to say this about three more times in the book. I was more wise, I was more wealthy, I was more powerful than any who ruled Israel before me. I mean, this guy far out trumps Trump. No matter what you think of Trump, he's way ahead of him, okay? He made gold as common as stones in his kingdom, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 10. So if anybody has all the means and the opportunity necessary to find meaning and purpose in life, this guy has a chance. The ultimate 
weekend warrior, except for him, every day was a weekend, right? And so we're going to explore life as if we're in the shoes of this Solomon-like figure. And we're brought to the main theme right here in the first sentences of chapter 1. And what's the basic conclusion we find in verse 2 about the meaning and the purpose of life? That it has none, apparently, right? There you go. What did you learn at church today while Pastor Corey was gone? All right? So that's interesting. I mean, what on earth is this book doing in the Bible? This isn't what I expect to find when I open the Bible. This might be the response that some of us may have had uh, when you opened the book of Ecclesiastes in the past, or maybe you're having it right now. And some of you are wondering, what in the world would I get out of exploring this book? Why should I be interested in exploring it at all? You know, and what in the world does it have to do with finding purpose in my life? It's true that Ecclesiastes is one of the most dark and beautiful and profound books in all of the scripture. And I think many books in the Bible have a positive function of teaching us things that we couldn't know anywhere else. And they reveal to us God's character and God's heart for the world and what's really he's up to and so on. But the book of Ecclesiastes is not positive. It actually has a negative role in the Bible. Okay, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually trying to deconstruct everything you thought you knew about life in the world and reduce you to your knees by the end so that the good news can, in fact, become good news. Some of you are probably thinking, well, we don't need that anymore, thanks to 2020. Now we have COVID, Greg, so let's just skip to the good news, please, right? But often the good news about Jesus comes to us as people who are actually very content with life, or at least we think we are, and we spend most of our waking hours trying to pursue deep levels of happiness and fulfillment and contentment, and we chase it because whether we know it or not, we believe that it's possible to find that here in our life under the sun. And the book of Ecclesiastes is just going to throw a big wet blanket on your life when you study it. So why are we doing this? Why would we want to explore it? And I think there's a lot of different reasons, but here's the biggest reason to me anyway that I want to talk about today. This book of the Bible, I think, is aiming at a very common mindset. It's a pattern of thinking that's very, very present and very prevalent in our world today. It was prevalent in the author's time and is prevalent today. And one pastor I listened to has dubbed it the myth of religious fulfillment. It's very prevalent, I think, especially in religious communities. It's the idea that I get religion in whatever form. Okay, in this case, we're a community of Jesus. So Jesus religion, all right, or whatever. So I follow God, I follow Jesus, I do the God thing for a reason, all right? We may not even very, we may not be very explicit about it, okay? But the driving motive behind it is I do this religious thing, I do this Jesus thing so that my life is enhanced as a result of it. It's like CrossFit or jazzercise, or eating keto. You know, you don't do it unless you think you're gonna get something out of it, right? So I believe that my life is gonna be enhanced. And it's a mindset that says God's role in my life is to make things go better, it's so that my life gets better. And maybe I don't have as many problems, or maybe I'm a better, happier kind of person, and so on. And I can live a happier life, and I can be good, and things will go well. It's the myth of religious fulfillment. I invite God into my life so that my life will go better. Now there's a whole bunch of us, or maybe not a whole bunch of us in the room today, that are going, oh yeah, that is so good for the person next to me to be hearing right now, right? Um, or it's so good for all these people in the room to hear that, but let's, Let's peel back the layers here. I'm gonna to try to do it gently. The book of Ecclesiastes will not be so gentle in peeling back these layers of how we think and we actually kind of deceive ourselves in this way. You know that you have great expectations about what God is going to do in your life, right? Usually we don't think about them. We just assume that God is up to something in our lives or at least we hope that he is. But we're very aware that God is not doing what we expected in our lives when life gets very hard, when things get difficult, 
So you know what your expectations are when your expectations are lying in pieces in front of you on the floor. And this is how life is generally. We like to think that we're rather wise and that we have control over our expectations. But the reality is that we all come to life with all kinds of expectations we don't even know that we have until reality takes a very different turn. I think all of us in life move toward this and are kind of thinking this at multiple points in our lives. Why is God in my life? Why am I doing the Jesus thing in the first place? What's the purpose? Well, I hope to get something out of it. And I know that I hope to get something out of it when I'm not getting anything out of it, right? Does that make sense? Um, it all becomes very clear to me that my life's not getting better, and I'm thinking, why did I invite Jesus into my life in the first place? My life's actually seems like it's getting worse. I mean, my prayers aren't getting answered the way I thought they would, and I'm not sure they're making any difference at all. Many of us have been there, or we're going to be there. Places in life where it actually becomes very difficult to believe in God, period. Or to believe that God is good and that he cares about me and that he's involved in my life and in the world in any significant way. And many other people come to the conclusion, I've tried the Jesus thing or, or whatever and it didn't work for me. So they ditch belief in God, okay? They ditch their faith. These are possible conclusions. But the book of Ecclesiastes is going to raise the problem, the possibility, what if God is not the problem? What if my expectations are the problem? What if I thought that what I was signing up for was actually some version of the myth of religious fulfillment? I'm going to invite God into my life to enhance my life and to make it better and to solve my problems so I'll be a better, happier, more successful person or something like that. And we think, no, of course, I would never think like that. But think of times of great disappointment in your life when your life felt like a huge flop. And if among the first responses at that time is to get angry at God, is to blame God for what's happening, then what's happening there in reality? What's happening is that hardship has a way of exposing our core beliefs and our core commitments and values. And what's being exposed there is that, well, I guess I thought the deal was that I was gonna do the Jesus thing and God makes my life better and that's not getting better. So what's the disconnect? Maybe it's my expectations that need to be altered. And one of the things that the book of Ecclesiastes is aiming at in these distortions and misconceptions that we have about life and what we should expect out of God's involvement in our life. The book of Ecclesiastes is exploring and humanizing the struggle of what it means to live life here under the sun. And so it's a very important book, I think. Let's go back to the beginning for just a minute. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one, we read it already. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. If you put your thumb there and you turn to the last page of the book, which is just a few pages over, chapter 12, verse 8, you'll find this. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. So the book ends as it begins. Now, the New Living Translation has meaningless, and others of you may have versions that say vanity, vanity. And vanity is kind of a good word, but... Historically, in the English translation, that's the word that's been used. And this word that we're going to look at, is this is the core word in the book of Ecclesiastes. It gets repeated 40 times in 12 chapters. And so this is key. If you want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to get what's going on with this word. Everything revolves around what the teacher means by this word. So vanity is what many of your translations have. And that's an okay translation, except in modern American English, as I have learned, vanity is something that you sit down at to put on makeup, right? Or a lot of us think about vanity as self-obsession, and neither of those is what the teacher means here. Meaningless is a pretty good word, except meaningless would lead you to believe that the teacher has looked at everything and has come to the conclusion that there is no meaning. It's absent whatsoever. And when you look at this word in the book, you find that that's not what he means either. 
okay? The word that's going to be used 40 times in these 12 chapters is the Hebrew word hevel, okay? Say it with me, hevel. I didn't hear you guys online, but I'm just gonna trust that you said it, okay? Hevel, hevel is a brilliant metaphor, all right? Literally, it means smoke or vapor. And what the teacher's gonna do is run everything through this grid. He's gonna run all through these little thought experiments in the book, okay? I saw a guy who was really wealthy, and then he died alone and poor, and that's Hevel, the teacher says. Or I saw a righteous man, and he was really good, and everybody loved him, but then all his kids died, and horrible things happened to him, and that's Hevel. He's going to do all these thought experiments about how screwed up life is here under the sun, and he's going to constantly call it Hevel, 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 over and over and over again. Now, I think to capture what he's doing, we need to actually somehow use fire and smoke to see it. So I'm going to make some smoke, okay? Corey brought seeds on stage. I'm going to set fire, okay? All right, so we get the candle going. This is a lovely candle. Okay, so it's there. You can see the smoke. Maybe you can. It's a smokeless candle. The smoke comes, all right? It's there for the five seconds, and then it's, it's gone, okay? So this is the first meaning that the teacher is going to attach to the word hevel. It's here, and it's gone, like smoke, all right? So, for example, in chapter 11, verse 8, he says, When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. Hey, as long as you're alive, you should rejoice, he says. But in the next verse, he says, but let them also remember that there will be many dark days, right? And he doesn't just mean death. He also means the days when your body begins to really fail that precede death. And then he talks about that in chapter 12. All that comes in your short life, it's hevel. So that's a pretty natural meaning that you would attach to hevel. It's here and then it's gone like smoke. But that's not the main way he uses the word hevel. And the main way is is really, it's really super. I love, I'm a Bible nerd. I'm just gonna have to admit this to you guys now if you haven't figured it out already. The teacher uses the word hevel to mean enigma or mystery or paradox, all right? Like in chapter eight, verse 14, he says, here's something that's hevel. He says, good people get what wicked people deserve and wicked people get what good people deserve. Now what's that? That's hevel, right? Now what does he mean? He doesn't mean that it's temporary because that's how, it, that's how it is here. It's not fleeting. That kind of thing happens all the time, all right? Now, smoke, which I thought I would have more of, but is smoke a thing? Is smoke a thing? Yes, right? But if you try to grab smoke, it doesn't work, right? It's like it's not there. And is smoke real? Absolutely, smoke is real. It's there, it comes from fire, but the moment we try to make sense of it, if we wanna grab it, if we wanna grasp at it, it's gone. And this is the teacher's view of how we experience life here under the sun. Everything is hevel, everything. The moment you think you have life figured out, you don't. In fact, the way that you know you don't have life figured out is by the fact that you do think you have it figured out. That's how you know, right? For example, we all have this concept of justice, all right? If you do one thing, you should get a certain result, right? Do the right thing, you ought to get what you deserve. Do the wrong thing, you ought to get what you deserve, okay? That's the way it should happen, all right? It should happen that way, but it doesn't always happen, right? We're all on the same page? That's the way the world ought to work. Does it always work like that? Sometimes it works like that. But it doesn't always work like that. And that's Hevel. Why? Why doesn't it work the way it's supposed to? If we all have this sense that it should work in a certain way, why doesn't it work that way? And because our sense of justice is rooted in God's justice, that God is the one who is the, uh, the ground of what's right and what's wrong, then what does that mean about God, all right? That sometimes justice takes place and sometimes justice doesn't take place, and that's Hevel. 
Now, this is really important. If you look at verse 2 in chapter 1, the teacher says, everything is hevel. Everything is hevel. I can't grab at it. So he says in verse 3, what do people get from all their hard work under the sun? Which is the second key idea here in the book. All right, this gets repeated 30 times in the book. The main idea of the book of Ecclesiastes is life is hevel under the sun. And under the sun is his thought experiment. What if you factor God out of the equation for this 70 or 80 or 90 years, and that's all I have, and I'm just trying to make sense of life with what I can see and hear and smell and taste and touch? Five senses, and that's all I've got. All right, let's give this thing a go, right? And what do we get of lasting meaningful value here? And he's gonna say you get some things that are pretty good, Okay, you can have a great meal, that's fun. You can meet a spouse, that's pretty great. You can have some meaningful work and you can enjoy that. But most likely, some seriously hevel things are gonna happen to you in your life. And that just throws the whole system off in his mind. And because we're coming at this thousands of years later, post-Jesus, okay, we can say, yeah, but that's not the whole picture. And the author's gonna wait on that. He knows that, but he's not going to tell you that until chapter 12. He's going to make you sit through the whole experiment. What if this life is all you've got under the sun, and it's hevel? It's sometimes good. It's sometimes bad. You don't know, and you can't predict. It's pretty brilliant, I think. So there are three wisdom books in the Bible, all right? They're called the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes is one of them. Anyone know the other two? Proverbs and Job. Proverbs and Job. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job, right? Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Proverbs, all right? Let's actually read a verse just here to get a sample of it. A famous passage from Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Now, does this sound like a good deal? It's a great deal, isn't it? Healthy body, strong bones. Who needs vitamin D, right? Just fear the Lord, and apparently you'll have strong bones. And Proverbs is full of this. Right? It's full of this idea that if I do the right thing, if I fear the Lord, if I honor the Lord, right, this is what will happen. And if the myth of religious fulfillment has grounding anywhere in the Bible, there you go, right there, okay? Trust the Lord, straight paths, healthy body, strong bones. Who could say no to that deal, right? But here's what's tricky. It's that the book of Proverbs is a book of Proverbs, Okay? It's not a book of promises. It's a book of Proverbs. And what's happened a lot, I think, throughout Christian history and Jewish history is that the Proverbs are taken to be promises. Pro- Proverbs, by their very nature, are saying, here's how life tends to work out most of the time. And if you go through life and you're upstanding and you have integrity and you're a hard worker, you cultivate healthy relationships and character and virtue, is life likely to go a little better for you than if you're just a persistent liar and a cheat and you steal and you burn relational bridges wherever you go? I mean, who's likely to have a better life? The first person, of course. But is that always the case? Here's another one, Proverbs 13, 9. The life of the godly is full of light and joy, but the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. It's like those who honor and fear the Lord have a light shining in their home, and you can see and everything's clear. But if you don't honor the Lord, your lamp gets snuffed out. Proverbs 24:20, for evil people have no future, the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. Now, is that how life can go here under the sun? These proverbs, does this happen? Absolutely, right? This totally happens. But does it happen all the time? The book of Job comes along and says, "How How often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out, really, right? Does their their calamity ever come? I mean, I've seen that sometimes, Job says, but I don't see it all the time. In Ecclesiastes, the author says, I've seen a righteous man 
who perishes despite his righteousness, and a wicked man who has a long life despite his wickedness. And that's Hevel. It doesn't make sense. It seems like justice is real, and we all know it, and we all try to live by it, but we mostly fail at it, and we don't see it work all the time. And the author says that's Hevel, okay? Now, here's what's happening here. If you've got a superficial view of what the Bible is, if you think the Bible is just golden tablets that dropped out of heaven or something, and it's all commands about how you should live, then this is going to bother you because you're going to be thinking that there's a contradiction in the Bible. But that's not what the Bible is, right? That's especially not what these Old Testament books are. The three wisdom books of the Old Testament I think of as like three Israelite sages who walked into a bar, right, to have a drink and talk about how life works. And the book of Proverbs starts the conversation by saying, this is what I've seen. I see people do this. They honor God. They shun evil. They fear the Lord. And their life will tend to go a lot better. And in Ecclesiastes, you'll read in many places, the teacher says, that's totally true. But it's not true all the time. And that bothers him to death. It bothers him. So he's going to do and highlight these examples. And you need all three of the wisdom books to give you a whole understanding of what it means to be a human being and to be in relationship to a God who's working out his purpose in the world, but whose purposes sometimes we don't understand, right? Now, some of you may be really bothered right now, and some of you, maybe this is a breath of fresh air because you knew that this was true in your soul, but you didn't realize that the Bible actually talks about it. When the teacher says that life is hevel, okay, it's a mystery. It's like I can see it, but I can't grasp it at all. Does that rule out the possibility that life has any meaning or has any purpose? In other words, when he's saying it's hevel, is he saying that there's no purpose to be found whatsoever? Is that what he's saying? And I would contend no. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, I sure can't figure it out. There may be some meaning I just can't grasp what it is. And I think this is when we come down to it. It's very often that the myth of religious fulfillment paints a very black and white world, right? A black and white picture. I do the religion thing and God's gonna do his thing, which is the straight paths, healthy bones. That's how it works to enhance my life. But then we come across life experiences that just break all that down and it doesn't seem to work. And then it exposes our core assumptions about God. Well, God must not be real, or he must not be good, or he must not love or care about me. And the book of Ecclesiastes creates this middle space that says, what if I just have the wrong set of expectations altogether? What if God's promise to me under the sun, okay, by which he means in this broken world that we live in, compromised by sin, what if God's promise to me is actually not to solve all my problems? What if that was never his promise to me? What if his promise to me was actually not that my life would go better and all my dreams would come true? What if his promise to me that's later revealed to us in the gospel is that God actually enters into the hevel of human existence and takes it on himself into himself on the cross. And what if you and I are left in a position of great humility where even though I may not be able to grasp at what the meaning of life is, am I gonna presume to say therefore that life has no real purpose for me because I can't figure out what it is? That's the gut punch of the book of Ecclesiastes. Just because I can't sense the purpose, does that mean there's none? That's the wrestling match that we have with hardship and difficulty in our lives, right? I know that seems like a lot for just three verses, but when the teach, what the teacher is gonna do throughout the book is he's gonna relentlessly show the small and fleeting and fragile position that we're in as human creatures living in a broken, compromised world. And it's hevel, and that's the human condition. We seem to know that something is horribly wrong but none of us seem to know how to be able to do anything about it, and life is hard, and it's hard to follow God sometimes. And it's especially hard if you're under the illusion that God's role in your life is to make a golden path to your dreams, 
You're just setting yourself up for disappointment, and you need to deconstruct your expectations. Now, as I said earlier, Ecclesiastes performs a negative role in the Bible, and you can just see it. It's going to come, if you read chapter after chapter, until he's going to shine a very bright light in the last paragraph of the book, okay? Chapter 12, verse 9. The author of the book says here, keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them, and the teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful, and the collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. Ecclesiastes has a handle on an experience that we all resonate with today, right here in Life Under the Sun. If this is all there is, this is a really sad place. And it's right, it would be true to come to that conclusion. And he says, the words of the wise are like cattle prods, okay, painful but helpful. They're like a stick that a shepherd used to move the sheep. And he's essentially saying that these wisdom books in the Bible, they're like a stick with nails in it, okay, nails in the end. And the shepherd uses it to prod the sheep or the oxen in the direction he wants them to go. And I think shepherd there is a reference to God. God has inspired and given these wisdom books, all three of them. Three guys, all with different perspectives to give us a full view on human experience. And the book of Ecclesiastes is gonna hurt because it's gonna poke us. And it's gonna expose areas where we may have brought into the myth of religious fulfillment. It's gonna expose ways where I have a distorted view of myself or of God. And it's gonna hurt when that stuff gets exposed inside of me. But this exposure is taking place at the hands of a good shepherd who's trying to prod us in the direction that leads to life. That's what the teacher is saying here. He says in verse 12, but my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. And we all know, especially today, between Amazon and online and everywhere else, you can read endless books on life trying to comprehend it all, and you will wear yourself out in the process of reading them. So verse 13, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments, for this is everyone's duty, and God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Now this isn't whiplash right at the end of the book. Essentially what the author is doing is pulling back the curtain and saying, but this world in fact isn't all there is. These few years that we have aren't all we have. And in fact, every decision that we make does have a purpose. It does matter, but it matters in ways that we may not be able to see. I actually may not have a handle on why certain hardships ever enter my life, okay? I may never grasp it. We may never grasp that. And why is it that things that don't make sense in my life and what it is that they happen? Why do they happen to me? But does my not making sense of those things mean that there is no purpose in them? And the Bible says the answer to that is no. But it's important that we rid ourselves, I think, of these distorted ways of thinking about God that set us up for a fall. Now, I realize that may have been like drinking from the fire hose, but I encourage you to take some time this week or this month maybe to read through the book of Ecclesiastes on your own. I think it's a really relevant word for us to hear, especially in a culture where it's like, man, this life is all that you've got. You just need to take care of yourself and live in the now. And I think that's really even a stronger message for us in 2020 in the middle of COVID. And as Christians, we can get into that mindset as well, and it sets us up for a fall. Right? And ultimately, what the myth of religious fulfillment does is it reverses the gospel. The gospel tells me that God has his story of what he's working out to rescue and renew in the world. And he's calling me to play a role in his story, in his purpose, that had its climax in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. And the myth of religious fulfillment reverses it and says, well, it's actually about me inviting God into my life, into my story, to make my story work out pretty well. And when that doesn't happen, I get angry and I blame God. 
But which way do you want it? And whose purpose will your life be about? The Apostle Paul, many years later, wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our Father God, who blessed us completely, who chose us and adopted us into his family through the work of Jesus, who forgives us, who lavishes he has made known to us his purpose to renew and restore and reunite everything in creation with him and in him. And the gospel is doing that in every situation and in every minute of every day for his children. I want to share something with you guys as I close that I read earlier this week. As you look at your life and you look at the world around you today and consider whether you honestly believe that the purpose of God's will is true the situation that you face. The author wrote this. God is never anxious. There is no confusion in the Trinity. God never wrings his hands and wishes he had made a better choice. God never worries about what is going to happen next or stresses over how things are going to turn out. God is never surprised or caught up short. He's never in a situation that overwhelms him. God never feels needy or unprepared. God never regrets that he did not do better. God never fails at a task. He never makes promises that he cannot keep. He never forgets what he said or what he wants to do next. God never contradicts himself or fails to be exactly who he said he was. He is all-powerful, absolutely perfect in every way, faithful to every word, sovereign over all that is. He is the definition of love, and he is righteous, just, tender, and patient all at the same time. He is not dismayed or distracted by our panic and our questions. And in the face of our ongoing struggles, his plan, his purpose marches on because it is not based on our character, but on his. I don't know if this speaks a word to you today. I don't know if it's like a goad to redirect you or it just encourages you to down a path you're on. If you feel like life is pressing down on you and got you wondering what's the point of it all, if you're lost in the struggle and you're just wishing that it would go away and life would get better, or if you're feeling like I'm really doing okay right now, but if anything else goes wrong, I don't know what's gonna happen. Solomon had life and probably the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time handed to him on a silver platter. He had it all, he tried it all, and he still found himself looking around and saying, this isn't enough. There's things going on in this world I don't understand, and sometimes I wonder if there's any meaning in this life at all. And if that's where the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us, then remembering that Christ has come to us and died for us and was raised by the same power of God that now lives in us by his spirit and renews us day by day and is even gracious enough to invite us into his plans and his purpose for the world. Purpose that's saturated in God's perfect knowledge and perfect love for his children, a purpose that life can make hard to see, but his word can make clear, and a purpose that cannot fail and will not be denied. When we remember and trust that purpose, that's when the gospel truly becomes good news to us.
And it's the best news that we could ever hope for. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, Lord, um, as we consider the world we live in today. God, that above and beyond that, you are sovereign, that you reign, that your grace and love are more powerful than anything we face. God, that your purpose and your plan will not be denied. And in your goodness, you invite us to be a part of that. Father, help us trust your purpose and help us trust your heart for your children, even when we cannot see it. We pray for those, again, who could not be with us today. God, we pray for those who are struggling, whether it be here, God, whether it be online. Lord, if they are struggling to trust you, we ask that you would, in your grace, through Jesus, give them your presence and your peace today. Lord, we love you, and we praise you in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You were just, yes. <laughs>